0: Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Matt Harris here, Seton Tucker over there, and we are so grateful that you've joined us for another episode of Impact of Influence, which is also where you can find it on Facebook. And when you're on the Impact of Influence Facebook page, you'll be able to be guided to our YouTube channel that we're slowly but surely uh, getting rolling. Uh, the intro to this podcast will be in YouTube, and we'll have the interview in kind of a different format, but you'll figure it out while you watch and learn. Uh, we are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and we'd love for you to share the episode, rate the episode, comment and share, and all that good stuff as we move on from all the Murdoch stuff here. Uh This is the story of Susan Smith. Let's get us rolling, Seton.
1: Well, before we get to our guest, Tommy Pope, the man who prosecuted Susan Smith, let's tell the story of Susan Smith. This horrible event occurred in Union, South Carolina. Now, it's a small town with a population of just over 8,000 people, and it's in the upstate of South Carolina, uh, close to Spartanburg. It's actually in this 16th Judicial Circuit, which is York County Mm -hmm. and Union County, which is the same circuit that we live in.
0: Yes, and a very rural area. Susan Smith's story shocked the nation in October of 1994 when she claimed that a black man had kidnapped her two young sons from her car in South Carolina and drove away with her kids in the car. This massive manhunt ensued, and for nine days she was making dramatic pleas on national television for their safe return. Here's a clip from the news where she's describing what she says happened.
1: Please let me take them and he said no, We didn't have time because they were in car seats and it was going to take time for me to get them out of the car seat. And um, he just told me, he said, but I won't hurt them and he just took off. But he had a gun and my, my big thing is they were screaming, hollering, crying and I'm just scared that he just lost his patience or something. I know. plead I to know.
0: the guy,
2: to the man, me and my wife, plead to him to please return our children
0: to us safely and unharmed. We love our children very much, and we want them to return to us safe and sound.
1: This is one of these moments, you know, we all have those moments where you were on Mm 9-11 and different moments. I can remember exactly where I was when I learned about these two young boys who were missing. I'd actually had my first job in Columbia, South Carolina, and there were alerts, and everyone was talking about these two boys in this Potential carjacking, and it was shocking, and right. everyone was on high alert. That in hopes that these two young boys would be found. It
0: was it was national, and especially locally, it was really blowing up because I, you, two young boys, a hijack. It could happen to any of us. I mean, a hijack, a carjacking. We could you, you're thinking, like hey, this could happen to any of us. I wasn't here at the time, but I remember it. I was in uh, where was I? I was in Ohio at the time, working in Columbus, and I, I totally remember the story captivating everybody. And, and she went on uh, television multiple times with her husband to plead for the release of the kids. Here's another clip.
2: I want to say to my baby,
1: <laughs> that your mama loves
2: you so much. And your daddy, these whole families love you so much. <laughs> and you guys have got to be strong because you are, we, 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 I just know, I just feel in my heart that you're okay. She got to take care of each other.
0: So it was very dramatic. They, they were appearing uh, again and again. They, she was on with uh, Katie Couric on the news. It was a big thing. But suspicions behind the scenes, no one knew, were quickly turning that maybe Susan Smith had something to do with it.
1: Well, I mean, no one knew, and I think everyone wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt. But I think when she went on Katie Couric, I think most people were like, oh, those, cro- those tears seem strange. It was It was odd.
0: Her and her husband, who the poor guy, he knows nothing about this. Uh, David, right? Yes. David, yes. Uh, we're making multiple appearances, begging for people to find this mysterious black guy in the car and whatnot. But we eventually find out that it was only, I believe, the second day of the investigation where police are, hey, something weird's going on here. They believe that she at least knew where the car might be, and they were still hoping the kids were still alive. Uh... Then investigators started to search lakes, and there was a problem with that.
1: Yeah, they started to search lakes, including the John D. Long Lake, uh, where the bodies were eventually found, but they were not found where they thought they were. They thought they would be close to shore, uh, maybe 30 feet close to shore, but they were much further. It turned out they were 122 feet from the shore where they were eventually found. Because they
0: were just trying to guess how far would a car roll in, and it went way further than they had expected. After the boy's been missing for two days, the Smiths went in for a polygraph, and that's when things started to change. There was a pivotal moment in the case, which we'll talk with Tommy Pope about in a little bit, when she recounted the location of the carjacking.
1: According to her, she had halted uh, at an intersection for a red light, and despite the area being devoid of other vehicles, now that's what I think really caught her, because Mm -hmm. She she says she stopped at a red light. Well, this was a light sensor, center, censored light. So mm-hmm. it would have had there would have had to be another car at the intersection to turn it red. To turn it red,
0: right? And that all of a sudden became okay.
1: And this was new problem. technology at this time. I think that people didn't really realize the fact that yeah, traffic lights had these type of sensors.
0: Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot wrong with Susan Smith. There's one of those things is that she couldn't get her story straight. But she finally confesses. On November 3rd, 1994, uh, again, I think it was, how many days was it? Nine days of this going off. She finally confesses the unthinkable. She had strapped her children into the car seats, rolled her car into a lake, drowning them both. The revelation stunned the nation, and Smith was arrested, tried, and eventually sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for this heinous crime. But here is uh, part of the press conference that the police had after arresting her. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts
2: of murder in connection with the deaths of her children, Michael, three, and Alexander, 14 months. The vehicle, a 1990 Mazda driven by Smith was located late Thursday afternoon in Lake John D. Long near Union. Two bodies
0: were found in the vehicle's back seat identities are pending all autopsy. Now, I mean, this case captivated the country, not only for the tragic loss of two innocent children, but also for the disturbing deception that was perpetrated by their own mother.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just remember seeing uh, home videos from a birthday party with her, with her children, playing with her children. She's appeared to be a good mother. And then it was just unthinkable, I think, to the general public that she could strap them in car seats and roll them down a hill.
0: It's still unthinkable. It is. It's still unthinkable, and I the the husband, to be very clear, knew nothing of this, had nothing to do with it, knew zero about it, uh, and I he has to live with this, uh, and it's just heartbreaking.
1: No, and I think at at you know in the initial steps of the investigation, he was under scrutiny as well.
0: Right, but it turns out nothing to do with it. Her motivation, some say, was her trying to. Uh, get this relationship with this local wealthy guy, and prior to the murders, this wealthy dude had sent Smith a letter ending the relationship and expressing that he didn't want to have children. I don't want to have children. So she, in her mind, according to the prosecution, we'll learn more. If I get rid of these kids, then maybe I can have this richy-rich guy.
1: I just don't think he was that into her. Period. Period. Yeah. Uh I did research him years later, and I think he's an artist, and he lives in Alabama now. Oh, really? And I'm sure he feels a lot... Of guilt, he probably was just trying to break up with her.
0: Yeah, he has no yeah. Last thing you would think that if you break up, say to somebody, I don't want to date you. I'm one of the reasons I I'm not really into children, that they go kill him. Right? Yeah, and you don't think insane. that's the reason. So with the trial one on a 95, David Bruck, Judy Clark, co-counsel for Smith. Clark in her opening statement emphasized Smith's profound psychological distress where traitors deeply troubled, battling severe depression. She conveyed to the jury. Here's the quote I was looking for. This is not a trial about evil. It's a trial about despair and sorrow. Now, we'll find from Tommy Pope the, that they contended Smith intended to in her own life, but they say her body involuntarily ejected itself from the vehicle, uh, whether she was trying to kill herself or not. That's what the uh, the, the defense was saying, that she, she would kill all of them, but Tommy Pope and... She was
1: trying to do like, a no murder-suicide yeah, type and thing. Yeah, they, they, they were saying, no saying. way.
0: Um, the jury reached a guilty verdict. Two-and-a-half-hour deliberation. Tommy Pope went for the uh, death penalty, and we'll find out that that didn't happen. Uh, she is up for parole, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Also, some love letters that came into Susan Smith. We'll talk about that after we talk with a guest, but yes.
1: Yeah, so I was actually one of my friends who went to a day of the Murdoch hearing with me. Uh, she has family in union, and she was just interested about going. So she actually went to the to a day of this hearing.
0: Of the, of the, of this, of, of this hearing. Yes. Oh, really? Back in the Smith. day, because
1: she was just said, I feel like I need to see it. And that's, she felt the same way with the Murdoch case.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you believe Alec did and he was convicted of it, there's somebody killing a kid. If one kid in his case, two kids, two little kids. And this one, it's just, it, it's appalling.
1: And there are small towns and the amount of media uh, attention this got is, is similar.
0: Yes. So it brings us to our guest. He is currently Speaker Pro Dem, District 47, York County, South Carolina. I uh, was also an attorney in private practice with Elrod Pope Law Firm. He was a solicitor, also was with SLED for a while, and he's known for a lot of big cases. But the one we're talking about today is the Susan Smith case. He is Tommy Pope. Hi, Tommy. Thanks for taking time for with us. Hey,
2: thanks for having me. With that intro, it sounds like I can't keep a job. But
0: I, I <laughs> <laughs> That's because everybody wants you. That's what it is. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> You've been <laughs> at it a long time.
0: Yes. So, yeah, yeah. When when did Susan Smith, case, when did that become your case? How did that play okay, out?
2: So in the 90s, I was elected uh, in 1992 as the solicitor, which is our district attorney for York and Union County. So York was my larger county here in South Carolina, Union, my little small county. And so I've gotten elected in 92. And then um, I was uh, 30 years old then. I was like the Doogie Howser of solicitors. <laughs> then. I was, uh, but, uh, but anyway, so York County was my big county. I kind of got elected because we had a bad backlog. I was working on that. Like I said, we would go to union maybe once a month for court. And then I guess it was the, the end of 1994 um, when uh, initially the report of the, the boys missing and the carjacking. And the state police, our SLED agents you would mentioned that I used to work with, um, were contacting me at night. I always tell people I was actually in York County trying a case. I was doing the Lord's work. I was prosecuting the uh, preacher that was embezzling from the daycare. So wow. I was, that's, what, <laughs> that's what I was doing. But I would get calls at night you know, from SLED agents kind of updating me. And honestly... You know, based on my experience, I really felt like it was probably more of a domestic thing. And she had the kids, you know, just hid somewhere because she was kind of going through a divorce or whatever. And then I I remember we just finished uh, that trial in York. And and that evening I got a call from SLED that the boys had been found. And so I loaded up and headed down to Union then. So that would have been, what, late October of 1994.
1: Well, I want to set this up for our listeners. I think having lived in South Carolina at the time, I think it's one of those moments of where were you when you heard about the boys? I remember I was had my first job right out of college in Columbia, South Carolina, and basically that's all you heard on the news. They were really trying to find these boys, and it was, you know, I don't know. I just remember the exact moment when I heard about it and where I was. Did you have that moment?
2: Yeah, well, you know, of course, we ended up. Um, we sound like our parents now when we try to describe, you know, the scenario yeah. to kids. You know, for years I went around and after the trial and you know talked to prosecutors about ethics in the media and how you deal with it. And but I always remember, you know, it was in the shadow of the O.J. case. So O.J. was going on then, and that was the first kind of big kicker for you know like court TV and things of that nature back then. And so. Um, I remember hours occurred after and I always laugh. I said, I'd like to think I did a good job. Of course, you know, I was seeking the death penalty and the jury gave her life, but um I said, uh, we we started after OJ and finished before then. In other words, we did a tight, you know, couple week trial mm-hmm. where you know that thing went on for years. But
0: <laughs> felt like yeah, it.
2: yeah, and so and and this is this dates me too, but I you know, post-smith. I used to always be able to tell if back then we had pagers, you know, again, back to explaining young people, we didn't all have phones and weren't all connected. But if I saw a number that was a New York number or an Atlanta number, I knew someone had, had. killed their children again, you know, subsequently, you know, because I'd get a call, you know, what I mean from Nancy Grace or Court TV or or whoever. So, yeah, I actually remember mine is maybe not quite as glamorous. Like I said, we had just convicted the pastor for uh, stealing the money. He would take the checks and deposit them and pocket all the cash where the parents had paid. He was helping the ladies in the daycare purportedly, but uh, we had just, uh, finished, just going out uh, my, my prosecutors and I to have a little adult celebration. And I think I've just got my first drink on the table when the sled agents called. And so that, yes, I definitely remember exactly where I was when I got the call.
0: So at that point, the arrest has, hadn't been made for Susan Smith, Correct
2: so it's interesting i so i drove to union and i actually was physically there when the the boys were pulled out of the lake I, i i traditionally have always gone to crime scenes you know not necessarily like you see on tv where i'm there while they're processing it or anything of that nature but i always went even if it was just subsequent because i knew if i was ever having to stand in front of a jury you know, and describe something, I'm, I'm a kind of a visual learner, so it always helped me to be there, but this one, too, you know, we had already had all the media pressure you talked about, you know, because again, back then, this was the story, you know, there weren't all these sources, you know, all the national media were here, and so, um, and Susan had kept kind of milking it for, you know, please help me find my kids. So, you know, they're looking for the car jacker for those nine days. And, you know, she's begging for the children. And so I knew, although I had had other cases and other death cases, I knew that this one was going to be kind of bigger than life because of the media involvement. And, and so another reason I went down in addition to, you know, kind of evidentiary is I always remember seeing those boys pulled out of that lake and I Mm -hmm. knew going forward, there were going to be times when, when I kind of, I don't mean give up, like give up. I mean, I had a job to do, but you know what I mean? I had the power in my hand to offer a plea also, you know, and and kind of make all of it go away, you know, the responsibility, you know, if they were willing to take a plea. And I wanted to remember if I got tired and I got weak selfishly, it wasn't about me it was about them. And so I remember seeing them strapped in those car seats. I remember mm. uh, some of the fellow sled agents, you know, the divers and the you know the agents that were working. I've never seen grown men cry like that. I think thinking that there was, you know, we were going to find those kids and, and Susan kind of, you know, agging that on through her, her television appearances, I think, you know, was probably one of the more heinous circumstances I'd seen in, in that regard. So that's down at the lake. And then I went to the church where they actually had Susan. And I said, and I've shared this before, but this is kind of inside baseball. I said, um, you know, has has she confessed? And they said, yeah. And I said, can I see the statement? Because it was the sheriff and there was an FBI agent, and a SLED agent. And they go, oh, she's, she's much too upset to give a statement. and. It was. It just kind of hit me odd because, you know, I said, "Guys, we we've got to have something documented," you know, mm-hmm. and and so they went in and gave. I didn't know this was unbeknownst to me at the time, but they gave her a legal pad and said, "Just write how you were feeling that day." And that's where we ended up with the quote confession from Susan that really began. It was the worst day of my life. Somebody I loved didn't love me, and I, you know, it was kind of a. An explanation, not a confession, which made it a little difficult too. You know, we ultimately had another vehicle we tested because we just really wanted to understand, you know, why they didn't find the car at first, you know, because it what happened, it almost when it went in the water, it kind of made a J and went over toward the dam. And um you know, initially, divers had been out there, but had gone, you know, straight off the ramp where you think it would end up. But we, we had tested it. But the difficulty was, I always said if the if the African-American guy did it or even the husband had done it, you know, you would have, there would have been an interrogation. You know, and in other words, mm-hmm. what did you do then? What did you do then? Did you let the break down? Did you do this? But there there was none of that. And, honestly, it's because Susan got treated uh differently than I think the you know defendant had it been the carjacker would have been.
0: Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals.
1: Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef crafted, dietitian approved, uh, including popular options like calorie smart, keto, protein plus, and they are ready in just 2 minutes. What did
0: you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature Premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact fifty and use code impact fifty five oh to get fifty percent off your first box plus twenty percent off your next box. That codes
1: impact fifty at factormeals.com slash impact fifty to get fifty percent off your first box and twenty percent off your next box while your subscription is active impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: Tell our listeners about what what her motive was and what you presented as her motive as during the trial.
2: I truly believe that, as, as odd as this sounds, but, you know, we see more and more macabre stuff all the time, but um, she was having a relation with the boss's son at the, the mill where she worked. truth is that boss's son was having relations with a number of folks at the mill, but uh, but he kind of did almost like a Dear Jane letter, Dear John letter, you know, it says, uh, you know, um, you know, I'd like to be with you, but I can't, I mean, and and I again, I think she deluded herself to thinking that this guy was really like, somehow they were going to be together and that was going to take care, you know, of all of her problems. And uh, he wrote, you know, but I'm really, you know, I'm not ready for kids or something like that. So rightfully or wrongfully, I'm trying to remember. It's as best I recall, her wedding album, her wedding dress, the kids. It's almost like she packed up that whole former life or current life, you know, right. of married with kids. Um, and there was almost everything I always said, but David Smith, the husband, you know, in that car, you know, and it it's like if that would just happen, if she was just a victim, then then that may, you know, because you always say, well, why don't you just you know, if you don't want kids, give them up and go be with right. the, the guy or whatever. But the, the truth is, if you do that, then you're kind of a bad mother. You're, you know, you're less worthy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you selfishly give up your kids. But if the carjacker takes your kids, it kind of ups your stock. You know, in other right. words, you're a victim. And I remember, um, I think the, the night she uh, rolled the kids in the lake, she had on the, the Tom Finley, I think it was the guy's name. Um, had his Auburn sweatshirt on, and she told David, the husband, during the nine days that that you know Tom was going to come, you know, visit the house, you know, where the house where they kind of had a vigil, trying to wait on the kids. So, you know, again, I've never p- spoken to her directly, but I think she truly had convinced herself that that you know being with this this other fellow was an opportunity if she didn't have the burdens that she had, and she made a horrible, horrible decision.
1: She kind of tried to pin it on an African American this this carjacking situation, right. and it was this traffic light that really busted her.
2: So John DeLong Lake, where she actually took the kids, was was a little more out in the country. But you know, to their credit, law enforcement kind of just kept going over and going over the story, with which you know isn't unusual. If my kids were missing today, they'd be interrogating me. You know, that's sure. just kind of a standard you know and so and slowly piecing it together but what happened she kind of tricked herself up because the story she told of a where she was at at a traffic light when she got carjacked the light could not have been in that configuration if there had not been a car on the side road in other words it was one of those you know lights that you know gets triggered by the pressure of the car at the other side of the intersection and you know there were no cars there according to her testimony and so that was one piece that kind of unraveled unraveled i would also say that um in a strange twist i think the media pressure ultimately was her undoing because going all the way back to when she ran to the house from the lake after the kids were rolled in the lake and and first claimed uh you know made claims of a carjacker we got the video, the raw footage from Channel Seven up in Spartanburg. They were the first folks on the scene, and I remember it vividly. It was it was before the camera even came on, almost like we were doing before we aired this, where you kind of you know doing a little backstory or talking or whatever. And the reporter says. Uh, the camera was on the the, the main light, wasn't but they said, OK, when we come, you know, we're going to we're going to ask you about this, ask you about that. And she and David and David looks like a guy whose kids just got carjacked. You know, his eyes. I mean, he looked like a deer in the headlights. Susan looks at him and kind of giggles that they're going to be on TV. Oh, and. I mean, I, I remember that vividly in, in the raw footage. I mean, it was a, an exciting adventure for her. And then to have all the adoration and all the well wishes and all the attention. And, you know, that went on for days, if you guys recall, you know, with the, you know, every major network and and then when it slowly kind of turned and they were, you know, people were out searching for the, you know, kind of generic description she gave of the African-American with the toboggan you know, the carjacker. We would get calls, you know, from around the country of the vehicle possibly being spotted. And uh, But then, you know, the media interest kind of died out somewhat toward the end of it. And and ultimately, they looped around and started asking her some harder questions. And she started uh, tripping herself up. So, I mean, I think that, you know, if she hadn't had that pressure, um, she may have stuck with her story.
0: And I saw uh, an interview you did at one point, cause she was getting like love letters or something. And you said that you believe that she was even, I don't know if she was flirting with sled agents. She was like right out of the gate, which after the arrest. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: So, so you think you're going through these nine days and, And again, this probably still happens, but we're so immersed in news now, it's probably not singled out as much. But that, you know, literally at that point, the focus of the world was on Union South Carolina, you know, and finding these kids and everything. And um, so during the day, you know, law enforcement's hauling down leads. Like I said, we're getting calls from all over the country. Um, But one of the sled agents told me they were going to pick her up to bring her for a polygraph. You know, David Smith would take polygraphs. You know, it was, you know, various questions. And it's a delicate dance, even with the polygraph, you know, because she could always clam up or lawyer up. And what have you got to prove? You know what I mean? You don't have any, any evidence of anything. But I remember particularly one of the sled agents told me he went to pick her up. And she literally was flirting with him and said, You know, oh, what a beautiful day. I wish you and I were going to the beach oh, instead gosh. of, you know, riding here. And that's why our, our kids are still laying in the lake, you know, unbeknownst to everyone but her, you know. And so, um, you know, again, she, she is an interesting character.
0: How does it work uh, for those of you who don't know the South Carolina way of the death penalty? So you had the, she wasn't going to fight that she did it so what you know what are the grounds of it being a death penalty that that made Uh, it for that sure
2: sure so so in south carolina death penalty is is basically for lack of a better term a murder plus so the first thing you do you you have you know the murder and you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and then you prove what's called aggravating circumstance in this case there were a couple, uh, you know, killing someone of a certain age, you know, a child, killing two or more by one act. And so there was, so as a prosecutor, the first thing you do is can I prove the murder. The second thing you decide penalty-wise. In other words, you can have a murder and choose not to proceed with the death penalty, even though, you know, you say you killed a child of a certain age or whatever. But in this case, we had both. And so then it's a bifurcated trial. The first part is about Mm -hmm. guilt and the second part is about penalty and and what the reason for that it allows you to show things in the second phase that really aren't germane to guilt you know whether mm-hmm. you did it or not it, and how bad the crime was you know in other words yeah. maybe even the pictures of the boys coming out of the lake it's just enough to know you rolled the car in the lake and so that's kind of the The two phases. So it's funny the the um, guilt. You know, people said, always said, well, she confessed. Why is there even a trial? Well, the prosecutor's burden is to prove it. You know, beyond a reasonable doubt. And so I had I had to prove it. I remember. David Brock, the defense attorney, kind of made a comment to me in the courtroom. Well, we have pretty much abandoned the black guy did it defense, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. Right. And I said, well, don't worry, I'm ready for that one too. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the angle you you, you pursue. So, um, so it, the toughest thing for me in trying the case itself is that to the end, um, my witnesses that I needed, like the sheriff were really on her side. You know, they didn't want me to seek the death penalty. And, and my view on that, I always tell people, always as a prosecutor, I viewed the death penalty like a, a necessary part of my job. You know, almost like a soldier you know, I, I don't have to relish shooting the enemy to recognize that being part of my job. It's not like I woke up. I always said I'm not the end to the defense attorney Yang, you know, where they're trying to avoid the death penalty at all costs. I don't wake up going, you know, woohoo, I get to seek death. But in this circumstance, I thought whatever the maximum punishment is, that's what she needs. You know, if our maximum punishment was 20 years then I'd have been fighting for 20 years. And part of that, to me, was I just felt like, because i tell you what was strange for people is Susan, you know, would remind you of one of your coworkers or your sister or whatever, you know what I mean, an and appearance and, you know, somebody you knew from church. You know, it was, we're much more comfortable when it's the boogeyman, you sure. know, when it's a bad yeah. guy, you know, when mm-hmm. it's a serial killer or, you know, the. You know, Carjacker, but it makes us uncomfortable when it's when it's one of us. Because I remember in particular, you know, my my child was that you know around the same age as the boys. Or my oldest son was oh, then, and I thought, you know, I leave and go to work every day, and I don't ever worry about my wife Kim harming the kids. Mm-hmm. So you know that part was kind of kind of disturbing. But but going back to the definitely, I, I just felt like. If the black guy had have done it, they would have wanted to execute me if I didn't seek the death penalty. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if David Smith, the father, had done had committed the crime, it would be the same deal. And I just felt I knew the likelihood in South Carolina, you know, of a female, the death penalty. But I just felt strongly. I mean, because quite candidly, it'd be a lot easier for me to to. Not seek the death penalty, you know, preparation wise, work wise, stress wise, but I just felt like it, it needed to be done.
1: Let me ask you this going back to the trial, you know, we started our podcast with uh, the Murdoch coverage, and the trial was held in Walterboro, South Carolina, small town, and this was held in Union. It's before the social media became a thing, but obviously right. this was huge. It was national. What right. was what was it like in Union during the trial?
2: Well, one, um, and people often wonder about this, um, we did not change venue. And I, I know that's not directly your question, but yeah. it's kind of tricky. Um, it was hard trying it in Union because it's such a small town and everybody knows everybody. Um, and they know they're going to see, you know, Susan's parents, you know, at the grocery store or whatever the case may be. But as a prosecutor, it was a little tricky because what you have to do is show that you believe a jury couldn't be fair and impartial because they're tainted, you know, by the outside information. And, and the difficulty was kind of for me, I'm darned if I do, darned if I don't. If I make that motion, I'm acting like the people that elected me couldn't be fair and impartial. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and so that was a tricky dance. But um, it was so realistic down there. I remember the night I went to the lake and then came to town and I literally remember feeling the car kind of vibrate and, and roll down the window. And what it was, was the sound of all these generators. Back then they had the satellite trucks, you know, oh, yeah. instead of getting all the uplinks that we can do now. And, um, so, I mean, the, the town was lit up with, um, with these satellite trucks, you know, and all the TV stations, all around, all parts of Main Street, um, it, it really became uh, somewhat of a circus in that regard. And and you know, the community, to their credit, handled it real well. I, I remember, you know, because ultimately, like Oprah came to town, all kind of stuff like that. But I remember. Um, this was actually a lady on Channel Seven again in Spartanburg, but it was an African American lady, and I were going, "How do you feel about the community blaming a black man?" And and what they were kind of tying this to is, you know, everybody's out searching for the black man and searching for the kids, thinking it's a carjacking. And this African American lady said it best. They, she said, you know, the community didn't blame the black man. Susan Smith blamed the black man. And so mm-hmm. to their credit, you know, even being, the you know, the stereotypical small southern town, I never really saw the racial problems that could have, you know, come from, you know, such an allegation, you know, that unfortunately we see all the time today. But it was it was surrealistic. The trial was in, in regard to. Um, I said, I never saw so many new dresses and hairdos in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you know, I've had people testify, you know, on a chain of evidence, and they didn't want to go on for 15 minutes, and heck, it used to be before I couldn't get them to come to court on a murder case. <laughs> <laughs> so the cameras oh. were in the courtroom? I can't, were they? So, no, ultimately the judge banned cameras, okay. and it was it was kind of uh, another one of those catch-22s, I was saying, like, change of venue, because selfishly, so so at the, rather from you know Susan in the monster and i give the defense credit but you know by the time we got ready we were ready to try it in pretty quick fashion but we ended up ultimately trying that following following summer in july and by then the defense had kind of worked the public opinion so it was susan the victim you know the victim of her snapfather victim of her upbringing the victim of her husband or whatever and um they had really worked that pretty good. And so then it got to, you know, poor Susan and that I was only trying it to further my own career. And um, so the irony there is it's cameras in the courtroom. If I act like I don't want them in there, then it's like I got something to hide. And if I do want them in there, I'm a glory hand. (laughs) But, But, you know, but selfishly, the only time I really wanted it, was in the penalty phase when David Smith testified and he um, basically what I do in the penalty phase with the victim is literally have the loved one, the family member, bring the, the decedents, the deceased victims back to life. In other words, tell me about Michael and Alex, you know, on a Saturday when you got up and ate cereal and went to the park and watched cartoons or whatever it was, you know? And 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 then I actually take those victims' um, family members back through the death, which is excruciating, but it's important because you want the jury to know the full impact. And when David Smith uh, testified, it was so gut-wrenching I mean, he needed to come back, but if you can imagine the pain, the betrayal, the you know the anger, you know, um, it was intense. And selfishly for me, I wish that cameras had been there then because words don't do it justice. If you saw David Smith testify, you wouldn't wonder why Tommy Pope was going forward with the case. So that that was interesting. I remember, you know, I'm not allowed to show emotion. So I finished his direct. The defense was smart enough to not ask him any questions. The courtroom is packed. And about halfway back, I'm headed toward my office. I'm about to burst into tears. And this lady on my right, about halfway through the audience, looks like somebody's grandmother. And she said, Mr. Pope, Mr. Pope. And I said, "Yes, ma'am." And I thought for sure she was going to say, "Tell David we're praying for him, or God bless him, or something like that." She said, "Can you tell him to speak up? We can't hear back here." <laughs> and I thought, you know, I mean, we see it all the time now, but you know, this is the greatest outpouring of misery and tragedy yes. I had witnessed. And it's like, turn the volume up. We can't see the show. That's you ridiculous. know, and it was, it was tragic. It is said sad. I, I, yeah, I went back to my office and, and cried a little bit about that, too. But, you know, big boys aren't supposed to cry, so that's why I hid in my office. Well,
1: let's fast forward to 2023 and Susan mm-hmm. Smith's parole situation. Now, she has not been an ideal prisoner. I think uh, she had some sort of sexual relationship with a guard at one point, and she's had some drug stuff. And we know we she's received—she communicates—she's got a lot of love letters, which we, we actually— Alec Murdoch, we talked about that with him, yeah. but wh- right. what are, what are your thoughts on Susan Smith's parole?
2: So she will be eligible. Um, uh, let's see about this time next year. So it'll be 2024. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, of course the jury for starters, back then in 94 life didn't mean life. That's why she's eligible. In in 96, the law changed and life, Began to mean life. But the difficulty is the jury, you weren't, it's a strange quirk in the law, you weren't allowed to tell the jury she'd be eligible for parole. You know, the judge oh, was wow. just had to tell them, you know, because a lot of times you think, you know, and, and I remember one of the jurors subsequently actually saying something to this effect, you know, that they thought it'd be greater punishment for her to go to prison and, you know, think about Michael and Alex all the time. Yeah, suffer a little I, bit. Like that, yeah. I think that, you know, kind of a, a suffering or remorse situation. Unfortunately, I mean, I think, you you know, some of the incidents you name bore it out. Um, Susan hadn't been worried about Michael and Alex, you know, and again, I'm not in her head, I'm just saying an observation of her actions. Susan's more worried about Susan. and and, and making Susan happy. And that's why I think those boys ended up in the bottom of the lake anyway. But short version, there'll be a hearing um, next year. Um, I traditionally have have just sent a letter when asked that basically states, I believe in truth and sentencing. And I think the sentence ought to be what the jury believed it to be. Um, Again, it'll be kind of that striking a balance for me of of weighing in if needed you know if david smith reaches out to me and needs me then i'll i'll be there but but not you know again trying to dig it for the limelight or something you know and so mm. um we'll see you know what occurs on that
0: um tommy i appreciate you uh, hanging out with us i want to have absolutely. you back to talk about murdoch at some point is that cool with you absolutely just right. let me know all right tommy it's been great man appreciate it and uh we will talk soon, okay?
2: Yes, sir. Take
0: care. Thanks, Thank Tommy. You. Tommy Pope. Bye-bye. Uh, really insightful uh, interview, and I think he he, he obviously still bothers him. He didn't get the death penalty. She's up for parole, as we mentioned, November 4th of this year. 2024,
1: yes. November
0: 4th, her first parole hearing. I, it's hard to believe that she'll be released, but I—I I, who knows? Well,
1: she's had some things... While she was in prison, I think she had a relationship with a prison guard. Yeah, so th- I'm sure that will be a strike against her. She's
0: in the Leith, I believe it is called Correctional Institute near Greenwood, South Carolina, and uh, she's been getting some love letters, as we mentioned there a little bit. Uh, this is from Fox News on November 28th. Just well, first of all, she told him Meyer on a recorded jailhouse phone call last. Uh, this would be in October of this of uh, 23. That, quote, she could see herself around kids. What? Yeah. Uh, and the suitor says, you'd be a great mom, babe.
1: Well, what, she's the
0: uh, H-E double hockey sticks?
1: I-, I don't know. I mean, she's 52. Um, I doubt at this point she'd probably have a, a child, but... Um, she also got another one that said, Susan, I could really fall for you, but like I've told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I'm speaking about your children.
0: Yeah, you think? That was I mean, ex- that's boyfriend. just like
1: the other guy that yeah. she offered children for. That's odd. Uh,
0: there's, there's, you know, the, the relatives, they say, are shocked by the fact that there's a half dozen guys or so that have reached out and wanted some sort of relationship.
1: I mean, we did the whole uh, episode with the person who wrote a book on oh, women yeah. who reach out to... Men who are in prison, but mm-hmm. I guess men also reach out to Crazy. women who are in prison. Uh, she had one man who offered her a car and a place to stay if she's paroled.
0: It's sickening to think that you would want to even hook up with Susan Smith. Yeah. That is that. If you've got more information you'd like to share or were part of this at the time, feel free to reach out on the Impact of Influence podcast, uh, the Influence on Facebook, I should say, and uh, rate and share and, and do all that stuff, and we will talk soon, friend.
1: or wherever fine podcasts are found. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever
2: you get your favorite shows.